It is good to be in the house of the Lord today. You know, if you watch TV, if you listen to the radio, if you get on the internet, you see churches do all kinds of things, gimmicks, ploys, tricks to get you to come to church. So I thought we'd do that too. I had to wait till the kids got out before I did this. I didn't want to stampede up here to get my bubbles. Isn't it weird though? You, you think about, you are coming to sit in the presence of the Creator God, the Elohim of the universe, and people have to be coaxed to come. People have to be tricked to come. That just doesn't make sense at all. Following after God is not a game. It's an opportunity. It's a privilege. It's a challenge. But it is something that He calls us to, equips us for, even when we don't feel that equipping. And this is what we're studying in the book of Acts. This chapter that we're doing this week is kind of an introductory chapter to the next chapter where Paul preaches to the Jews and we get his sermon. But this introduction is just filled with things. Last week, when we moved back into the study of Acts, Brandon used chapter 20 to get us going. And in chapter 20, he read these verses. The Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city saying that bonds and afflictions await me. But I do not consider my life to be any account as dear to myself so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I have received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. Wow. I mean, great phrases. Bound in spirit, on the way to Jerusalem. Not exactly knowing what's going to happen, but the Holy Spirit testifies within him that there's bonds and afflictions. Aren't you good? But he says, my life is not dear, but my course is clear. I'm going to Jerusalem. That kind of resolve is what we're talking about today. That kind of commitment is what we're talking about today. That kind of obedience. Paul talks to us in other passages we find in his writings in the New Testament. In Philippians 1.21, he talks about, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's some really deep stuff if you want to really push into that. He says in Hebrews 12.1 and 2, let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the source and perfecter of our faith. For the joy that lay before him, he endured to the cross, despising the shame, sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Brandon used these passages last week to tell us of Paul's commitment level. And that's what we're continuing to think about. This man is on a mission. One of my favorite movies. Here we go. Mary Kay knows where I'm going with this. She's shaking her head already. Y'all will join her shortly. One of my favorite movies is The Blues Brothers. And the phrase they keep using throughout that movie is, we are on a mission from God. Well, it started with Paul right here. I am on a mission with God. His mind is clear. 
His goal is obedience and his message is the gospel. He will not be swayed from this mission. Every day we wake up. Every day we wake up and the choice is ours also. Will we be swayed from the mission that God has put us on, that he's called us to? Do we let our afflictions or even the threat of afflictions keep us from being obedient? It's real easy to wake up and just feel like, oh, physically, I just don't think I can get through the day today. And that's not, a, that's not an unreasonable thing. A lot of us have things that we deal with physically all the time, and it wears on you. And it leans on you. It may be, I just can't stand to go to work today. I just don't want to get out of the house. I don't go to work. Those people drive me nuts. And I work for an absolute idiot. What do you think the people below you were saying? But anyway, <laughs> we just don't want to go. It's wearing us down. We know there is afflictions and chains in our future and yet we have the same choice every day we're going to get up we're going to go because it's where God wants us to be God has given us the opportunity to be in the situation that we are in right now you think maybe you're here because of an accident you think maybe you're here because you did something wrong nothing you can do is bigger than what God has already done in you and through you we have our beloved Mullins, that we're sending out. They're moving into the next step of obedience in their life. And it started, you know, starts with retirement, but that just enables them to go and do what God wants them to go and do in a new location. At the same time, we've got a family moving out. We had a family visit for the first time today. See, we've already filled your spot, man. <laughs> God is always on mission with his people. So, let me pray us into this with this thought in mind. Dear Father, Lord God of the universe, we come before you this morning, honestly, God, because we have no place else to go that would bring us any more than we could have right now. Father, you are the giver of all good gifts. You are the strength when we're weak. You're the direction when we're lost. You're the light when we're just in darkness. You love us so much that even before we knew who you were, even before we recognized what you had done for us, you provided salvation for us. We are the creation of your hand, and you love us. Help us to see how much you love us today so that we are willing to get up one more day and step out into the mission that you've got before us. In Jesus' name, amen. We're in chapter 21 of the book of Acts. And I gotta tell you, the first 14 verses are just the events that get us to the story for today. Paul is on his way back from his third missionary journey if you have maps in the back of your Bibles, they'll have those little lines in it that says Paul's first journey, second journey, third journey. And on the way back, he's on his way to Jerusalem. He comes, he leaves Corinth and 
Ephesus and all that area up in there. And he goes from Miletus, where the story took place this past Sunday, to Patera, to Tyre, to Ptolemais, to Caesarea, and then on into Jerusalem. This is just the travel log portion, so I'm not going to read all that to you, except I did want to point out a couple of things. In the eighth verse of the chapter, it talks about Philip the evangelist as being there in Caesarea. Now, we first meet Philip in chapter 6 of Acts, where he's one of the seven men appointed by the disciples to minister within the church, to be deacons, to have a role of ministry within the church. He's one of those guys. In fact, in chapter 8, we have Philip set aside in a story about witnessing to an Ethiopian official and giving him the good news of Jesus Christ. And that Ethiopian official goes on back home and takes that good news with him that Philip shared with him. Philip, from that point, moves on to Caesarea. And this is where he stays. And this is happening years later. Philip's been there long enough that he's known as the evangelist in verse 8. It talks about Philip the evangelist in Caesarea. He is preaching throughout that region, that coastal region, and ends up in Caesarea, and he's still there years later. He's known because of his faithfulness to preach the word as the evangelist, and we now learn he's got four daughters. Phew. What a burden some men have to bear. He's got four daughters, and these daughters are all prophetesses. And yet, none of these daughters tells Paul, hey, you better not be going to Jerusalem. They're going to whoop up on you there. Everybody else is telling Paul that, but these daughters who are four prophetesses are not. There's, there's things, if you read deep enough into the histories and the, the people who dig stuff, little minutia out and read all kinds of stuff, they actually continue on in their role and in their abilities and become very well respected within the church in Caesarea because they prophesy for the Lord. Now there's a guy who shows up just out of the blue, Mr. Agabus shows up one day. We've seen Agabus before in scripture, but here he shows up and he takes Paul's belt, basically takes his belt off of him and he wraps it around his feet in his wrists, and he says, the man who owns this belt is in for trouble. They're going to bind you up when you go to Jerusalem in chains and, in, and just bind you up. So you shouldn't go. That's kind of dramatic. Some guy shows up at your house, takes your belt off your jeans, wraps them up and says, where you're going, it's going to be not good. Agabus. Everyone in Paul's world began to just beg him, don't go. Don't go to Jerusalem. You have said the spirit within you tells you there's going to be trouble there. Don't go. But at the same time, Paul looks at him and he says, you're breaking my heart here. You people who are traveling with me, you people who are my friends that I've been visiting with along the way back to Jerusalem, you're telling me something that I, you know, I really don't want to hear. 
I want you to love me. I want you to support me. I want you to be there for me. You're telling me not to go. James tells us in his book, in 114, that before we're born again, our, our sin, I mean, we're like everyone there. We are enticed by Satan to sin, to be disobedient to God. James tells us we're like everybody else. But when you're born again, your temptations change. Maybe not the methods. Maybe if you were tempted by some weakness in your life, that may not go away. Satan's still going to use that to try to tempt you. His methods don't change, but his purpose changes because after you are born again, after you become a believer, even in your temptations, he can't have you. So he's not tempting you to be away from God, to stay away from God. He's tempting you to become unuseful to God. He's tempting you to put your faith in God on the back burner, on the shelf, somewhere, not be obedient, but to be disobedient so that you cannot do the things that God is wanting you to do. As a believer, this is where he tempts you because he can't have you. Nothing snatches you out of God's hands. Thank you, Lord, for that. But what if these friends who Paul deeply cares for and they deeply care for him. What if these friends, fellow believers, had convinced Paul not to go? I mean, by all means, they were well-meaning. They had Paul's best interest at heart. What if they had convinced him somehow to not go back to Jerusalem? Where would he have gone? What would have happened next? It's not like the plan of God would have been upended, but maybe his participation in it would have been. And what I'm saying is not that these friends were evil. They were all good. They were all well-meaning, but they just didn't understand his heart. He has the heart of a saint. Everybody knows somebody that we feel like, man, that person's a saint. That's good. That's a little confusing at times. But... This person has the heart of a saint. Mm. I love Oswald Chambers. He has this devotional book. I've mentioned it before. My utmost for his highest. I stole it from my mom when I was in college. It's still on my bookshelf today. I was reading it the other day, and there's a great quote that you see up there on the board. To choose to suffer means that there is something wrong. To choose God's will, even if it means suffering, is a very different thing. No healthy saint ever chooses suffering. He chooses God's will, as Jesus did, whether it means suffering or not. No saint dare interfere with the discipline of suffering in another saint. Hmm. I would love, as your pastor guy, to make all your hurts go away. And some of those things I can help with. You got a tree down in your yard. You need someone to come and sit and pray with you, whatever. I can come and help with that. But I can't just make it all go away. Nobody can. Nobody should even try. And because someone chooses to be obedient to God, even in the face of suffering, 
doesn't mean they're nuts. It just means they're obedient. They're crazy for God. They're not just crazy. Notice what happens in verse 14. And since he would not be persuaded, we fell silent, remarking, the will of the Lord be done. Paul would not stop talking about, I am going to Jerusalem. This is where God, this is where the Holy Spirit is telling me to go. And even though there may be bad news when I get there, there is where I'm supposed to be. And they said, the will of the Lord be done. Paul's resolve is creating resolve in his friends. It's not creating understanding. They were still worried for Paul. But the best way to help someone is not always trying to hinder or sympathize, but to support. If you've prayed about what you think the Lord wants you to be doing, get after it. And let me come alongside you, as I would want you to come alongside me to support you, to encourage you, to pray with you. Lord, I, you know, Lord's told me there's going to be suffering for you in Jerusalem. And, uh, you know, my first thought is for you not to go, but I think you're going to go anyway. So uh, I'll be there with you, brother. And they went with him. They didn't just stay behind and he went by himself. They went with him to Jerusalem. Don't ever feel like God is dealing too harshly with a saint. Don't ever feel like, God, that's not fair. That person can't take that. That person's got so much already, and it just seems to be like things are piling on. God, give them a break, would you? Really? What if that, I mean, just you're in danger of questioning God's sovereignty, God's ability to do whatever God chooses to do. Don't get in there and tell God that he's probably wrong in this by allowing this to happen in the life of somebody you know or in your own life even. Who are we to understand the mind of God, the heart of God? We're just to be obedient. And that doesn't mean in, in the sense of being drones, being robots, being unfeeling and all that. No, it's far, far from that. It is to be passionate about loving God and being obedient to God no matter what. Paul's resolve is creating resolve in them. God is not dealing too harshly with them. Sometimes, and, and Chamber even mentions this in one of his writings, sometimes we feel like, God, you're wasting this person's life by having them suffer so much. They've got so much ability, so much potential. If you just put them in a different location, if you just raise them up to a new level or whatever, God, look how much good. It's not my place. It's not your place to tell God where to put whoever. He doesn't place you, family member. He doesn't place you according to your gifts and abilities. He places you according to where he can gain glory from your life. Yes, it really is all about God. And it really is all about us serving God with our whole heart, with our strength, with our mind. And it's not for us to try to figure out the comfortable way to do it. His placement is never based 
on what we think ought to be, you know, I'd be more useful. I used to, when I was a college student, I applied for summer missions to do a summer internship somewhere. My brother-in-law, the guy that would become my brother-in-law, had served one summer in Bangladesh. And he was out digging wells with people in Bangladesh. And I thought, that is so cool. I'm going to be a summer missionary. I used to have summer missionaries come down to Dilly, Texas all the time when I was a kid. And they were amazing. These were college students who God hand chose. God prepared. They were amazing. And I used to think that until they let me become one. <laughs> and knows that God can hit a straight lick with a crooked stick, you know? It's... I wanted to serve... And I, I thought, God, I grew up down here in this little country town. Put me out in some country town in a foreign land. Put me out in some country town on the other side of our own country. I can be a great witness to you, God, with a guy as we're on the tractor, as we're baling hay, as we're doing stuff. I can be a great witness to you, God, as we're out there and we're doing whatever it is that they're doing. You know, I, I'm a country boy, God. I can do this. So I applied with full intentions of God using me to the best of my potential. And he put me in South Oak Cliff, Dallas, Texas. 45 minutes from where I was going to school. I was disappointed. It's one of the best summers of my life. I learned so much that summer. As God taught me while I was teaching these little kids who lived on the street. I knew nothing about street kids. But that's who God had me with. And I learned a lot that summer. It's complicated to be Paul. I mean, let's just look at it this way. As we go into the next section of verses. Coming into Jerusalem. After, in verse 17, after we arrived in Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. And the following day, Paul went in with us to James, the leader of the church there in Jerusalem. And all the elders were present. After he had greeted them, he began to relate one by one the thing which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they began to glorify God and said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. And they were all zealous for the law. Wait a minute. He's telling them about all the things God is doing in the Gentiles. The reception is great. The brethren are there, open arms, received us gladly. They're meeting with James. I mean, he goes right to the top of the church ladder there and meets with the boss and tells him all these things, every little detail of what he's done. He begins to tell the story, and they were glorifying God at the report. But pastors are the best at playing one-up. You get a pastor, talk about his church, I promise you I'm going to talk about you next, okay? I'm going to show him that our church is better than his church. That God's busier in our church than he is in their church. Pastors are the artists of one-upmanship. And immediately James says, good for you, Paul. God has blessed those Gentiles. Hey, do you see the thousands of Gentile or Jewish believers that we have here in Jerusalem now? And see, he wasn't even speaking ministerially. There were thousands of Jews who had come to Christ. It began in Pentecost, that early part of Acts that we read, where literally 
thousands responded to the preaching of the disciples as they were filled with the Spirit. And that continued on, and the church grew like crazy in Jerusalem. The trouble was, this is where it changes directions. He says, we've heard about you. These Jews that are believers, that are Christians, have heard about you. They hear that you're teaching the Jewish people who live out there among the Gentiles where you've been to forsake Moses. That you're teaching the Jews to not circumcise their children. That you're telling the Jews to not walk according to the customs of their Jewish belief. They've heard about you, Paul. And we've got to do something about this. We've got to do something about what they've heard, about what you've been doing. First of all, those are all wrong. Paul had not taught anything like that in the way that they were saying. What Paul was teaching was the gospel. But what they did was really interesting. They said, Paul, we've got to fix this. So what you do, and this is what the chapter goes on to tell us, is you take, we've got four young men here who are about to go and take on a vow at the temple. And it would be a good idea, Paul, if you would take these four young Jewish men that are going to take probably the Nazarite vow. And the practice by that time was that they would go to the temple, they would shave their head, they would be there for a week of purification. At the end of that week, they would shave their head again, they would shave the hair I don't know how much hair I could grow in a week, but not much. But they would save the hair and they would burn it as some kind of little offering, sacrifice, whatever, as a you know, proof of their dedication and purification. Paul, you take and go with these four young men. And besides that, Paul, while they're spending a week in the temple, they can't work. They can't support their families. They've got a fundraise to go spend a week. In the- Why don't you just support them? Because you're obviously well off. You brought all this offering back to the church in Jerusalem. So why don't you just support these four guys while you're with them in the temple? You take the vow too. You take the Jewish vow of a Nazarite too. Paul says, okay. And he does. Now there are writers out there in the world who say, Paul made a mess out of this. He just really messed up giving in to this direction. But what we have to see here is that, well, first of all, it's very complicated to be Paul because he is having to deal with a people that he loves dearly. The Jewish people, he loves them dearly. In fact, when he's on this third missionary journey, probably while he's in Corinth, he writes a book or a letter. We made it a book. He writes this long letter to the church in Rome. This is before he's come back to Jerusalem even. But this expresses his heart. In Romans 9, 1 through 5, this is what Paul says. I'm telling the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience testifies with me that in the Holy Spirit that I have a great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ, for the sake of my brethren, 
my kinsmen according to the flesh who are Israelites, to whom belong the adoption as sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises, whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh who is over all God blessed forever. He says, these are my people. And I would give my life up. I would give my salvation up. I would give my place in the kingdom of heaven if they would just follow after Christ. He loved the Jewish people. Many Jews in Jerusalem had become believers, but they had remained also faithful to their Jewish practices, to their Jewish, not entirely wrong. Paul would do from time to time a Jewish practice. But when the church adapts itself to the society around it, it finds itself in a weakened state. Pay attention in 2023, okay? One of the greatest curses in the church is when they endeavor to adapt to the world. I'm going to give you a new theological phrase. You might want to write this down. It's called hokey pokey Christianity. You put your one foot in, you take it out. You put your other foot in, you take it out. You're just kind of like playing with this whole Christianity thing. But you always come back to where you're comfortable. Okay? That's what they were doing. This does not work. Does not create peace and harmony, but it creates disunity in the church. It, you try to create peace and harmony with the world around you. You try to look like the world, act like the world around you. And they were just trying to act like Jews, keeping the Jewish traditions and the Jewish practices. But they were putting those too high up in their estimations. 2 Corinthians 6.12 You're not restrained by us, but you're restrained by your own affections. Goes on to say in 14 through 18, Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean. and I will welcome you and I will be like a father to you and you shall be like sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. God says to us, don't love the world more than you love me. Don't seek after the world. Don't touch the stuff that I'm trying to separate you from. The whole deal here was the people of God were supposed to be different from everyone else in the world so that all the rest of the world would seek the God of these people. Paul is going to be accused of all kinds of things. A bunch of Jews show up even as he's coming out of the temple after a week of purification rites, even if he's coming out 
These Jews show up and start accusing him again all over again about you're preaching against Moses, you're telling the Jews that they don't have to keep the law, you're doing all this stuff and it's wrong and it's evil. And they literally drag him from the temple. So I don't think you're supposed to really do that. They drag him out of the temple and as soon as they get him outside, man, the temple's doors, he is not getting back in here. He would have his very life threatened right now. Paul, we warned you, don't go to Jerusalem. There's going to be trouble there. Don't go, don't go. First day back. First day back. He meets with James. James says, great job. Now you have to do this. A week later, they are dragging him out of the temple and they begin to beat him like crazy. Talk about God using somebody out of left field. Guess who rescues Paul? Roman soldiers. From God's chosen people. These Roman invaders rescue Paul from this crowd because they don't understand what's going on. But it's not unlike God, it's not unlike God to use the unusual to do his will. Do you remember when Joseph was favored by Potiphar and by Pharaoh in Egypt? Do you remember when Nebuchadnezzar and Darius uh, favored Daniel while he was there in captivity? You remember reading about Cyrus and Darius as we did in Hezekiah and Ezra, not Hezekiah, in Ezra and Nehemiah about how they aided the people to come back to rebuild the temple and rebuild the city of Jerusalem. You remember when the Philippian jailer we just read about this earlier, was kind to Paul and Silas who'd been thrown in jail. God is not through with Paul yet and he intercedes through some Romans to protect Paul. Next week we're going to hear as Paul is taken into custody, he has an opportunity to turn around the Roman guards, give him the opportunity to preach to these Jews. Really? That's not how that's supposed to work. But next week we get to hear the preaching that he does. And what he's going to do, he's going to carefully explain his relationship to the Jews. And he's going to carefully explain his relationship to the Messiah. And he's going to carefully explain the mission of God to the Gentiles. He's going to remind them basically of Clause B in this covenant that God has with Abraham. I will make of you a great nation. You are my chosen people. I will bless you. I will protect you. I will guide you. You are my chosen people. This is what he promises Abraham. Abraham's like, I don't even have kids. I'll make of you a great nation. Don't mess with me. And he does. And I'm like, man, they needed to be reminded of this Clause B, because he said, I'll make of you a great nation. I'll bless who you bless. I'll curse who you curse. I'll be your God. And all the world through you will be blessed. There's your messianic promise. There's your promise of Jesus coming through the Jewish nation, through the Jewish lineage. That's why it's such a big deal when you read in the Gospels, this guy beget this guy beget this guy, because it all stayed right there in the Jewish lineage of Jesus. 
But this is the promise. All the world through you, Jewish people, will be blessed. And Paul says, that's what I'm all about. So, continuing with the mission that he has been called on by God to go and take the gospel to the Gentiles. He created the nation, brought forth the Messiah. It's not all bad. The law, Jesus himself said, I didn't come to do away with the law, but to fill it up. Paul says, these Jewish practices that you do, it's okay, keep the holidays. Observe the rituals, that's okay. I even do that some myself. It has a place, but it's never to take the place of God. And that's what Paul saw within the church at Jerusalem and the believers there in their weakened state. They wanted to do this new belief in Jesus as their Savior on their own terms. And they, okay, yeah, Jesus, here's our Jewish customs and history and all this. And it would just vacillate back and forth, and they would just go, like, oh, we got to do this and all this. Jesus is always right here, but sometimes they would make this more important. That's why they even gave Paul some rules about it's okay for the Gentiles to come into the church to be believers, but they have to do this, this, and this, which kind of makes them look a little Jewish. They didn't have to get circumcised. But they had to observe some other things. The problem is, Everyone wants to do church on their own terms. This is why we tend to sometimes want to reflect the world around us, the pressures around us. Everyone wants to do church on their own terms. Sometimes we want to do what is familiar more than what is faithful. And that's going to get you in trouble every time. That's what you need to guard against. That's what I need to guard against in my life. That's where we need to stand together as a church to help each other. Paul knew that the Jews were desperately clinging to their past and they tried to force it on their present and their future. They would be hard pressed to accept the Gentiles that God wanted. So what Paul knew is that a new direction was needed. For the family of believers both in Jerusalem and around the world, Paul knew that he had to change the heart of these Jewish Christians, James and the bunch there in Jerusalem. They loved Jesus. They put their faith and trust in Jesus, but they kept watering it down, making it not what it was supposed to be. They needed to see there was a new covenant of the gospel for all men. They needed to see that the primary mission of the church was not just to preserve the past rituals and keep the things, we've always done it that way. That started with the Jewish people, I think. That is not the role. The church role now is to take the good news of Jesus into all the world. They could no longer do church like they had always done. And even today, if you come into a good Baptist church and you say, you can't do it like you've always done it, our first reaction is to put up our hands and go, whoa, whoa, wait, why, why not? Why, why do we have to change? It got us here, it was great. 
We've been faithful. We've been loving God. We've got us all the way here. But you can't do it like you've always done it. Why not? It got us here. Because sometimes we need to let God lead us. Because He doesn't want us to just preserve the past. He wants us to help Him create a future for all mankind. An eternal future of presence with all mankind. Our job one is to see people come to faith in Jesus. Our job one is not to protect the past. Our job one is not to be comfortable with what we're doing. Our job one is not to make sure that this or this or this or this is happening. No, our job one is just this. Bring people to faith in Jesus Christ. Are we going to, and I'm putting myself in there with you. You've heard this sermon for the first time today. I've been hearing it all week. Are we going to focus on job one? We need to be like Jesus. We need to see the world as Jesus sees the world. He wept over Jerusalem, but he gave his life for the world. We need to be like Jesus. Paul, there's a lot of similarities. Let me run through this list because I found this and I thought this was really good. Like Jesus, Paul traveled to Jerusalem with a group of disciples. He had opposition from hostile Jews who plotted against his life, made or received predictions of his coming sufferings when he got to Jerusalem, including being handed over to the Gentiles. Like Jesus, Paul had followers who tried to discourage him from going to Jerusalem because there was a bad fate awaiting him there. He declared his readiness, though, to lay down his life, just like Jesus did. He was determined to complete his ministry and not be deflected from it, just like Jesus did. Like Jesus, Paul expressed his abandonment to the will of God. Paul came to Jerusalem to give something. Paul alone was arrested when he got to Jerusalem. They didn't arrest Luke and the others who were traveling with him. They didn't arrest other believers who were in the city. They arrested him alone, just like Jesus. His disciples weren't arrested in the garden that night. Just Jesus. Unjustly arrested, falsely accused. Paul was happening the same thing. And just like Jesus, a Roman officer handling Paul's case didn't even understand his true identity. You'll see there, he, when he asks Paul at the end of the chapter, you know, well, I thought you were this guy who led this rebellion. And Paul's like, no, I'm from a little town over here. He's like, oh. The Roman officer who helped him didn't even understand who he was. Just like Jesus, Paul heard the mob crying out, away with him. Which didn't mean just take him out of this place. Put him away. Kill him. Because you are called, we are called together to live lives of obedience to God that will draw people to Jesus. How will you, choosing to live out your faith, walk daily? Church is not just about what we come together to do on Sunday morning. Church is being a family who loves each other, and encourages each other to follow God all week long, every day. Whether you're here meeting in the building, you're watching on the internet, maybe you'll 
Think about it later. Church is the body of Christ pursuing God together. Are you choosing to be comfortable or risk being obedient? Are you choosing this uncomfortableness that God may lead you to? I mean, this is a heart check for all of us, right? This is something from the pastor to every person here. We need to ask ourselves, am I I choosing comfort or obedience in my life? And I'm not saying that you're all being bad and you're all being terrible. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying that every day you wake up, you get to make the choice. And if one day you wake up and you're kind of feeling weak that day, you need to call me. You need to call somebody. I am not mental enough to know, oh my gosh, Carl's having a hard day today. I better call him. Carl's having a hard day. He better call me if he wants me to come pray with him and hang out with him. That's my deacon. I need to, I need to tell you when I'm hurting. I've been telling people lately, you know, we sit around church and Sunday school, Bible studies, prayer meetings, whatever, and we take prayer requests and somebody always says, we need to pray for the pastor. Thank you by the way. Pastor needs a lot of prayer. But there are a lot of days I'd rather you pray for Ken. Not just the guy in the role of pastor, but for the person who has a wife, who has children, who has grandchildren, who has hurts and things like that, who has physical needs, who has all this. Sometimes you have to pray for Ken because he's battling also, just like you. We need to talk to each other We need to help each other be the church of God so that we can be obedient to the calling of God, which is, job one, tell the world about Jesus. Because it all starts when we realize our need for Jesus. We were created to be in relationship with Him, right? In the beginning, man and woman, this is really good. And they walked together. And then man and woman decided to do their own thing, to be disobedient, and it separated them. And we, that was such a horrendous thing that it rattled through the generations. You don't even have to sin to be guilty of sin. You're born guilty of sin because of the choice that was first made in the garden. You need a Savior. This beautiful baby sitting down here on the fourth row needs a Savior. She hadn't done anything wrong. She's born into sin, and we, the church, have to come around this family and love this child and bring this child to Jesus through the good news of the gospel. We, the church, need to lift each other up. We have to choose. We were made to be in relationship with him. We stepped away from that relationship. Christ died to pay for our sins, rose again to make sure that we had a path to life with God that this relationship would be established. And we first have to choose that. But we have to share this news with everybody around us. This is what Paul said. I've got to go to Jerusalem. I've got work to do to share the good news of Jesus Christ with the Gentile world. And I would love it if my Jewish brothers and sisters would come along beside me because they know stuff. They've been following after this God for a long time. 
And now that they've got the Messiah in their heart, man, I need them. Church, you need each other. Oh yeah, you can do stuff on your own. But you need each other. That's why I make a big deal out of you being family. Because we need each other. It's full. It's commitment. It's what God intends for us to be as the church. Pray with me. Lord God, at this moment, we need to hear you call us to be committed to you again. I know, God, you called us so many times. And sometimes we answer and sometimes we don't. But right now, we need to hear in our hearts you inviting us to be committed to you, to be faithful to you, no matter what the cost. Father, we need to, we need to gather ourselves up and we just need to say, okay, God, I'll do that. Maybe we believed in Jesus a long time ago and we've walked with Jesus through the years, but we need to renew that commitment again. Okay, Jesus, I'll do that. Maybe we've never made that commitment to God. We've never admitted our disobedience and asked for forgiveness. We need to do that. Lord, help us right now. Lord, increase our faith. Get us over the hump, God. Only you can do this. You give us your grace and mercy. Father, increase our faith to be obedient to you. Lord, we love you, and we know how much you love us. Live very strongly in that. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Spirit, who is God. Amen.